Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And I took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and I gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, in your providence and your sovereignty, it's interesting that we come to Christmas time and we're right in the middle of the march to Calvary. That was the purpose of your incarnation, and so we thank you for the providential juxtaposition of that. Lord, this is a dark passage this morning, and yet there is hope even in the midst of it, Lord, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to understand your word. Lord, teach us, help us to listen, uh, to see who Jesus is, and to see how you authenticated him as the true Messiah, even in the midst of his march to the cross. Lord, prepare our hearts, grant me clarity, I ask, and we pray for your blessing on this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we do return to Matthew, and this, again, as I've said, in all of the 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 Gospels, I mean, even just by sheer content, this is the focal point. This is where the Gospels lead you, is the death of Christ, the march to Calvary. In particular for Matthew, though, we've been saying that that, that is a scandalous thing to Matthew's Jewish audience. Uh, Paul reflects on that as a Jew later. He says uh, the, the cross is foolishness, is a stumbling block, is a stumbling block to Jews. And so even as we have walked through, starting in chapter 26 and verse 1 and moving our way now into chapter 27, Matthew is in particular pains to show uh, the, the death of the Messiah isn't, doesn't disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah. It actually shows that he is the true Messiah. Matthew has been showing that as Jesus has predicted the details uh, leading up to his death. It's not just the broad scope of what's going to happen, although Jesus has done that, but it, Jesus has predicted the details, and they've all come true, even against the intention of whether it's the chief priests and scribes or Judas or Peter. Jesus has called all the shots. 
And not only has Jesus called all the shots, not only has he said, I'm going to die, I'm going to die in this way, but he has also announced the significance of his death. Going back to the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, he has said, this is, this is my body, this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. He is instituting the new covenant. He is instituting the death that will be for the forgiveness of sins. And we've seen that Jesus surrendered to the Father's will in Gethsemane. And we've seen him last, the last time we were together, the last time we were together in Matthew, we've seen him in the depths of humiliation. When a, from the world's standpoint, he is at the most humiliated point, declare in the most public terms that he is indeed the Christ, the divine Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And it fits with that whole theme that Matthew has been developing that is true uh, to the cross, that the, the paradox that in the road to exaltation for the Christ is the road of humiliation. The road to exaltation is the road to, is through humiliation. And this morning, we continue with those themes, uh, but focused on in particular, Matthew, what he does in this text this morning is he focuses on the evil, really highlights the characterization of the evil of those involved. But even in the midst of this dark passage, there is hope. And so that leads us to our big idea for this text. What is Matthew doing for his audience and what is there for us? I believe he's calling us to recognize the evil of Jesus' death, to see that in its full grossness, its hideousness, and yet at the same time juxtapose with that reality the necessity of Jesus' death for the restoration from exile. And you're like, Why, where is exile coming in? We will see as we go through the text this morning. But that is the big idea, to recognize at once the evil of Jesus' death, and yet its necessity for the restoration for exile, for Israel and for the rest of the world. And so as we look through the sections this morning in the text, we're going to see a lot of evil, but we're going to see hope as well. So let's see first in verses 1 and 2, as we come to this text, the evil handover to the nations. The evil handover to the nations. Look at verses 1 and 2, chapter 27. When morning came, and the idea is early morning. So this is a pretty early morning, gray light kind of morning. All the, tree, the, the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, you might scratch your head for a minute and say, well, wait a minute. I thought the last time we were together was the trial, and Caiaphas stood up and said, hey, are you, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Tell us. I put you under oath, and he declared it, and they, he, Caiaphas asked, uh, what is your judgment? He's liable to death. Well, what's going on here in verse 1 is just a recap of that. We took a digression talking about Peter's betrayal, and now Matthew is reminding us what just happened. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders of the people, the rulers, the leaders of Israel, they have, in reference to Jesus' public declaration that he is the divine Messiah, they have said he's committed blasphemy, he's worthy of death. And so really verse 1 just recaps that. This is what's already happened, and it's early morning by the time that they finally say, yes, he is worthy of death. We're going to put him to death. And then we see verse 2, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, you might ask, well, wait a minute. If the Jews have decided to put him to death, why, why do they have to involve Pilate? Pilate's the governor. He is the uh, Roman uh, leader in charge. 
because the reason is because at this time uh, the Jews could carry out much um, internal government. They could even punish for many different infractions, even of their own, uh, the own, their own law, the Mosaic law. But when it came to capital punishment, when it came to execution, Rome reserved that right at this time. And so what they are doing, they have already decided, we're going to kill Jesus because he blasphemed. At least in their view, he is blasphemed. He is declared to be the Son of God. He is declared to be divine, the divine Messiah, and that can't possibly be the case. He is blasphemed. We're going to put him to death. But they need to get Rome on their side. They need to get Rome to execute Jesus. This is why they bind him. Did you notice that? It's a kind of a, a minor detail, but it, it, it actually contributes to what they are doing. See, they have to convince Rome, who really doesn't care about the Jewish law. Uh, Pilate, he doesn't, he's really insensitive to the law. I mean, we can even find that out from extra-biblical um, information. He's uh, very insensitive to the Jewish law and customs. So he doesn't really care. Um, what do they have to do? They have to get Rome to execute this guy. Well, the only way they're going to do it is if they can present Jesus as a threat as a threat to Roman rule, as a threat to Roman interests in that area. And so they bind him. Why would they bind him? Jesus, isn't, Jesus has been quiet. Jesus has been uh, not threatening in any sort of way. In fact, when one of his followers chops off the ear uh, uh, in the garden, he heals it. So he's the opposite of a threat. But what are they doing? They're binding him and leading to Pilate to accentuate this guy's a threat. This guy's dangerous. We needed to bind him and bring him to the governor. Now, already in that, we see manipulation, and we will see it as we continue through next week, the Roman trial, when Pilate and the chief priests and the elders, they're all interacting. We will see that evil even put more on display than manipulation that happens, but you can already see it happening here. We see the evil handover to the Gentiles, from Jew to Gentile, to get to get the Gentiles to do the Jews' dirty work. But again, even in the midst of this evil, this has been predicted. This very handover from the Jews to the Gentiles has been predicted by Jesus. If you were to go back to Matthew 20, when he's still heading into Jerusalem, he hasn't even ridden the donkeys in yet, and before everything takes place, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says this in Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That happened. Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. That happened. Uh, happened in 26. It was re capped uh, in 27.1. And they, the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of Israel, they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. So Jesus, again, and we've seen this multiple times in the section, Jesus has already called that this is going to happen. The handover, the very act, the evil handover of the Jews to the Gentiles to try to get the Gentiles, to try to get Rome to crucify, to kill Jesus. Jesus said, that's going to happen. 
And again, it shows Matthew's Jewish audience that far from Jesus' death and all of the evil details surrounding it, far from all of the humiliation that encompassed Jesus' death, far from disqualifying Jesus to be the Messiah, it shows that he actually is. It shows that he actually is. Everything about Jesus' death was intentional. Intentional from God, intentional by Jesus. And that means that he is trustworthy. And that's what Matthew is trying to reinforce or to draw out from his audience. This is the true Messiah. This is the true king. Even in his humiliation, and even especially because of his humiliation and death, and therefore you need to listen to him and to trust him in all aspects of that death. That is what Matthew is calling his audience to do. Trust, faith, allegiance. Listen to Jesus. Trust him for what his death was for. And it's the same message for us, that as we are watching this unfold, your faith should be built up and reinforced. Your heart should swell, not because of the horror of Jesus going to death, not because of the horror in and of itself of his betrayal or uh, the, 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 the evil of the men involved, but because Jesus called it all, because everything Jesus did was intentional. And remember why. Remember what he said. The significance of all of this was his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So even though there is great evil in this, it is the very in the midst of all this, it's not outside of God's control. It's not outside of Jesus' control. And that should drive you to faith in him as the rightful king, as the Messiah. We see not only the evil hand over to the nations in verses 1 and 2, we see an evil attempt to rectify hideous betrayal in verses 3 through 5. We see another aspect of evil in this whole situation. The evil attempt to rectify hideous betrayal. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. Now, pause there for just a second. Where did we last see Judas? We last saw Judas in Gethsemane. We last saw Judas there when he is in the act of identifying Jesus for the mob that has come along with him from the chief priests and the scribes, the soldiers, whoever else came along, the representatives of the, the leaders of Israel. He is identifying Jesus. That's the last time we saw Judas. But what we see here is that he saw that Jesus was condemned. What does that imply? It implies that Judas was tagging along. It implies that Judas stuck around for the whole trial to the point with uh, to the point where where it last ended up in Matthew 26, uh, that he is condemned for claiming to be the Messiah. Judas saw all of that. But notice here what's happening. He saw he was condemned. He saw, uh, the, condemned to what? To condemned to die. He sees that, and that's what prompts him to do what he does next. He changed his mind, or the idea really is he, re he had regret. He saw that Jesus was condemned. He's seen this whole process. He's seen all the trial unfold. He's seen the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the scribes, whoever else is there. They've, he's seen them condemn Jesus to death, and he regrets what he did. And not only does he regret, he acts on that regret. He seeks to return, to bring back 
the 30 pieces of silver that he took from the chief priests and the elders of the people to betray Jesus, to hand him over, he brings it back. He brings it back. Now, let's think about this for a minute. If you were to go back, you don't have to turn back, but you can if you want to. It's just a page or two away. Uh, if you were to go back to why Judas betrayed Jesus, we kind of argued that he's, you know, Judas, Jesus gets anointed from the, the woman who knows he's going to die. She believes that he's, well, Jesus is saying he's going to die. He's going to be, um, she, she believes that. And Judas leaves and then immediately is like, what are you going to give me if I hand him over? And what we argued was, is that Judas is disillusioned. This Messiah, so he thinks, is going down in flames. I was following him for the benefits. I was following him because he's supposed to be the king. He's going to rule Israel, and I want to be there when it happens. And what we see is his motivation is gain, personal gain. And so he says, well, I might as well get something out of this. And he hands him over. But in none of that is it ever indicated that Judas thought that Jesus was going to die. He just hands him over and he's like, well, he'll be in a trial and he'll get discredited and that's the end of it. That seems like what Jesus is thinking because in this very text, he's saying he suddenly sees, whoa, he just got condemned to death. I didn't expect that. And it causes regret. It causes regret in Judas's mind to the point where he tries to undo what he's done. He's, he's bringing the very money back to the people he bargained with back in 26, 14, and 15. He's bringing the money back. Well, why are you bringing the money back? Because he's trying to stop it. This is like, uh, you know, you order something from Amazon and you get it. And was like, well, I want, I'm going to send it back. So I get my money back. Well, here he's bringing the money back to stop the whole process. I mean, that's the only reason it makes sense for him to do what he's doing. And not only does he bring it back, he says, here you go. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He confesses that what I did in handing Jesus over to you, I've betrayed, I've sinned. So he acknowledges his wrong before God that he is He's done wrong, and he is betraying innocent blood. Now, like we said, there's no indication that ahead of time Jesus, Judas knew that they were going to condemn Jesus to death. There's no indication of that, that Judas knew that. But now, the way things are going, Judas knows that Jesus is innocent. Judas knows that he's done nothing wrong. But now it's heading towards his death, and he's saying, if this goes through... I'm going to betray innocent blood. Now, that's a significant because the law in Deuteronomy 27, 25 says that the one who takes a bribe against innocent blood is cursed. So Judas knows if the execution gets carried through, he's going to be cursed by God. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to confess to the chief priests and the elders of the people, I was wrong. This guy's innocent. This guy's innocent. I handed him over to you. I was wrong. Here's your money back. Stop the process. I think that is the, the, the thrust of what Judas is trying to do. Because if they carry it through, then he's going to have taken a bribe against innocent blood, and he's going to be cursed of God. He's trying to stop the process. Now, 
mark this. This doesn't mean, just because Judas is sorry, just because he's regretful, just because he acknowledges his guilt, just because he even tries to stop the process, that doesn't mean that he is trusting Jesus as the Messiah. What is he trying to do? He's trying to avoid being cursed of God. He's trying to save his own skin. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to fix it. He's trying to make it right so that he isn't under God's curse. Now, what do the shepherds, the spiritual shepherds of Israel do in response to this? Still in verse 4, they, the chief priests and the elders, they said, what is that to us? What does that mean? It means uh, what you just said, what you just confessed to us, has nothing to do with us. Now, you think about that, and we understand that these are the guys that Judas bargained with, right? But I don't think it's, it's just, I don't think it's just bald hypocrisy per se. I mean, there is hypocrisy, don't get me wrong, but there's a, plaza, a certain surface plausibility to what they're saying, right? Um, Judas is the one who came to them. Judas is the one who initiated uh, Judas is the one who handed him over ostensibly because something was wrong with Jesus and he's handing him over to these guys. And so he's confessing guilt, but what are they trying to do? Well, you're, you're saying you're guilty. We didn't know about all that. And it doesn't matter anyway, because um, Jesus in his trial has confessed blasphemy. So what you're confessing in handing him over to us that he was innocent, uh, well, that may have been true, but that's your problem. You're the one who initiated all of this. And it has really nothing to do with the fact that we found this guy is blasphemous. You already handed him over. So this is your problem. And what do they say? See to it yourself, meaning go deal with it. Which is just callous and cold because these are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. Here is at least someone who is expressing regret. He's expressing, no, this guy is innocent. This guy is innocent that I handed over to you. Stop it. And they're t- because they've gotten what they want, they want Jesus dead, and they've used Judas as a tool to do it, they separate themselves from his guilt and say, it's your problem. You deal with it. You deal with it. And in so doing, what Matthew is doing for us, he's highlighting who these guys are, who these leaders, these shepherds of Israel, who they are. They're evil. They're wicked. They're manipulative. They're political. They are manipulating the situation to get what they want. They're not interested in innocence or guilt. They're not interested in whether they're shedding innocent blood or not. As long as they have a surface plausibility that they have done no wrong, they're fine with it. They put it all back onto Judas. You see to it. Now, what do they mean by that? What what does that mean? Well, like I said, in Deuteronomy 27, 25, one of the curses of the law is, says, if you betray innocent blood, if you take a bribe against innocent blood, you're cursed by God. Well, what do you do with someone who's cursed of God? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 
So mind you, Judas, if, if everything's carried through with the execution, he's cursed of God. Keep that in mind. That's what Deuteronomy 27, 25 says. Well, what, where would the law direct? Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Yahweh your God is giving you for inheritance. Notice, it's not the act of hanging that curses the man. It, you hang a man because he's cursed. Judas recognizes that. Judas recognizes that he's guilty. He's admitted as such. Judas recognizes that he's cursed of God. Judas wants atonement. Judas wants to fix the situation. What does the law prescribe in order to display that someone is cursed of God? You hang that man. The chief priests and the elders aren't going to do it. They said, see to it yourself. So Judas is going to do it. Judas is going to take the law into his own hands, and he is going to try to say, I am cursed, I did wrong, as a way of trying to appease God's wrath, as a way of trying to atone for his own sins. He recognizes his own sin, doesn't mean that he's trusting Jesus as the Messiah. He is going to, by what he interprets the law to do, he is going to try to self-atone for his sin. That is, what Jesus, that is what Judas is doing. So what does he do? Verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. Now, why does he do that? That, that action is filled with emotion, right? We get that sense that he is just disgusted with these um, shepherds of Israel. It's, he just sees he's been betrayed by them. He is, he, um, they're the ones supposed to shepherd him, care for him, help him through this, stop, be interested in innocence or guilt. They're not, and he's just... He's just disgusted, so what does he do? He throws the money into the temple, and he goes out, takes the law into his own hands, tries to self-atone and hang himself, showing that he is cursed of God. Now, you might think, man, it looks like Judas repented. I mean, he, he, he was sorry. He confessed his guilt. He even took steps to rectify his guilt. And even some scholars would say, Judas repented. In fact, he looks better than he, um, Peter in some sense, right? The, the time we left Peter is he's just weeping bitterly, right? Nothing happening there. He's just, that's where, where we leave him. But Judas at least is trying to solve the problem. But it is very clear that Matthew and the scriptures at large, this is evil. This is an evil attempt to rectify a hideous betrayal. Yes, Judas' betrayal was hideous. He recognized that in the end. But his attempt to fix it is evil. There's a sort of guilt that you can have over your sin. You can have a sort of regret over your sin, uh, even a regret that leads you to confess your guilt before God and before even his people. And a sort of guilt that even drives you to try to fix it. But that is ultimately evil. Why? Because atonement, atonement, covering of sin, forgiveness of sin, removal of sin from your account, 
it has to be done in the way that God intends. How is that done? Well, Jesus explained how it was to be done at the Lord's Supper. He, and remember, Judas, according to Luke's account, Judas stays for the Lord's Supper. So he hears Jesus say, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. See, Judas doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't take God's means of forgiveness of sins. He tries to self-atone, and it is evil in God's eyes. He is indeed cursed. Remember what Jesus said, the one who betrays me, effectively, it'd be better for him if he wasn't even born. So what Judas does doesn't cover his sin, though he tries in accordance with the law to cover it up, to self-atone, to make it right. The only way he could have made it right was through repentance and trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for his sin. Could Jesus' death have covered that? Yeah. Because what did Jesus say even earlier on in Matthew? He said, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I don't think Judas committed. He betrayed Jesus, a horrific sin. It's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He could have been forgiven but only through repentance and faith and trusting the atonement of Jesus. And see, that's how sufficient Jesus' blood is. That's how worthy Jesus' life given, the life, the, uh, the infinite worth of the life of the Son of God given in atonement, the purity, the perfection, the righteousness of that life. It is sufficient to cover gross sin. So if you're there this morning and you think, you know what, I've done some horrible things in the past. I'm an evil person. And if you reflect, because God, you know that God doesn't just measure your actions. He measures your thoughts. And if you reflect on that, your thoughts, that you, God will condemn you for your thoughts of evil, not just your actions of evil, then all of us in this room are grossly guilty have committed hideous sin. I can attest that even this week, thoughts in my own head would condemn me a thousand times. I'd be cursed of God. But the solution is not for me to fix it, to clean myself up so that I can walk into God's presence. It is, I need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and admit that I cannot fix it. I cannot cleanse myself. I cannot clear the curse that is against me. Only Jesus hanging on that tree has appeased the Father's wrath, has drunken the full weight of the Father's wrath against my sins and can account me as righteous, can atone for my iniquity. I can't self-atone. Only Jesus can. That's really the difference between uh, earthly religion and heavenly religion. Earthly religion, whatever stripe you're looking at, ultimately aims at just trying to cleanse the self, to self-atone. I'm going to fix it. I'll pay it back. I'll do enough good works. I'll do enough this or that, or I'll pay. Whatever it is, that's self-atonement, and it will never work. It's evil in God's eyes, just like Judas' death was. But Jesus' atonement, that's the only one that is sufficient to cleanse and bring righteousness before a holy God. 
So we've seen an evil handover to the nations, an evil attempt to rectify hideous betrayal. Let's see the evil hypocrisy of Israel's shepherds. Look at verse 6. We've already kind of, Matthew's already begun to characterize these guys, but it continues, verses 6 through 8. But the chief priests, now the chief priests were the specific group that Judas bargained with. If you would go back to 26, 14 through 15, he bargains with the chief priests. That's who he bargains with. So this is the same group he bargained with, okay? But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, remember Judas threw out of disgust, it seems like, the pieces of silver that he used to betray Jesus, he threw it back into the temple, into the temple proper, so like the sanctuary. The chief priests, they take the pieces of silver, so they gather them up, and what do they say? They say, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury. Now, this word for treasury, it's probably the closest word we could get to representing this. It's like the place where you store the gifts dedicated to the temple. Um, so that's what's going on here. People would bring gifts to the temple. They would even bring financial gifts, money to the temple. And effectively what Judas has done by throwing the money into the temple, he's in a sense, the way they're taking it, he's dedicated it to the temple. He's made it as an offering to the temple. That's kind of how they're thinking about it. But they're saying, but we actually can't do that because it's blood money. Now, what are they reasoning here? What's the thought here? Well, again, they're thinking lawfully. They're thinking according to the law. Because if you were to go back to Deuteronomy 23, 18, you don't need to. But if you want to, um, there's Deuteronomy 23, 18. And it says this, you don't bring the hire of a prostitute into the house of God. You're like, well, that's about a prostitute. It's not about a murderer. Yeah, but the way the law works, it works by taking principles and then applying them to different situations. So if you're not going to bring the wages of a prostitute as a dedicated gift for the temple, then certainly you're not also going to take the blood money and bring that into the temple. That's their logic. They're thinking lawfully. They're thinking according to the law. Okay, we can't do this. This money's unclean. Notice what they are doing. They are acknowledging that Judas is right, that this money was a bribe for innocent blood from them. They're implicitly acknowledging that and yet handling it in a way as if it's only Judas's fault and they don't have nothing to do with it. This is how hypocrisy works. Remember the word for hypocrisy is play acting, right? It is presenting something as if it is true when it's really not. And that's what these guys are doing, right? They're the chief priests. They're the ones who know the law. They are presenting and how they're handling this as Here's the lawful thing to do. Here's the good thing to do. What do they do with it? Uh, they, can't do, they can't use it for the temple, so what are they going to do? So they took counsel and bought with them a, the potter's field. Evidently, it's a well-known field because uh, it's just referred to as the potter's field, like everyone knows this, as a burial place for strangers. What does that mean? Well, uh, the problem is, is uh, when someone died in that culture, you basically bury them on the same day. So what happens if you're traveling and you're not at home and you're away from home and you die you get buried where you died. And so strangers come in, especially for things like the Feast of Passover or, or other things. They're coming into Jerusalem. So they do a good public service. They buy a field. And uh, it's, it's a need. Okay, what if someone drops dead and uh, needs to be buried? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll provide for that. We'll buy a field to provide for that. So it's a practical need, and it's a good use of this money. It's unclean money, 
Burial places are unclean, so we can go ahead and use it for that purpose. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Why is it called the field of blood? I thought it was the potter's field. Well, somehow it gets out that it was purchased with blood money, and hence the field is named the field of blood. On the surface, these guys are doing everything right and proper and legal. But they are doing so in a way that is covering their own participation in guilt. It is evil. These are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. These are supposed to be the leaders, and they are covering up their evil and their participation in an evil act and shedding innocent blood according to the law, so to speak. Why is Matthew doing this? Matthew, remember, Matthew's writing at a time where, are you aligned with the church that Jesus is building, or are you aligned with old Judaism? And that those, as time went on, it became harder and harder to do both. You know, some of these folks that Matthew was writing to, they're Jewish Christians, they might still go to synagogue and all of that, but the question is, where are you going to show allegiance? Are you going to show allegiance to these evil shepherds who are leading the nation, or are you going to show allegiance to Jesus, the true shepherd? And so the way Matthew is characterizing this, he's just highlighting the evil of these shepherds, the hypocrisy of these shepherds as they kill the rightful Messiah. It reminds us of what Jesus has said in, uh, uh, in, in the gospel already. Remember what he said? Uh, this people honors me with their lips. They do the right external thing, but their heart is far from me. Or what he said in Matthew 23, to the Pharisees and scribes at least, they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They're doing the surface right thing, but only to cover up evil and advance their own agenda. External rightness, external duty to try to cover up your evil and advance your own agenda is evil in God's eyes. Now, you might be saying at this point, it's like, man, this is just a bleak episode. It's just dark. And there's no doubt it is, but that's what Matthew is doing. Where's the hope? Well, the hope comes in verses 9 and 10, where we find that evil is exiled for ultimate restoration. Evil is exiled for ultimate restoration. Let's look at verse 9. So all this stuff has been happening, all this evil But Matthew gives us God's perspective on it with a fulfillment quotation. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And I took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and I gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. What we see in this, this is the last of Matthew's fulfillment citations. Remember, he's had these throughout. Uh, such and, this happens so that this Old Testament word by a prophet or pattern. So it could be a word, it could be a pattern, but uh, Matthew is in the habit of citing uh, either events uh, that, that fulfill words or events that fulfill patterns in the Old Testament. And this is his last one, and it's the hardest to deal with in the book of Matthew. Let me explain why. Uh, He says that this is spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, but Jeremiah never said anything quite like this. But Zechariah, the prophet, did. 
And so if you read any commentary on this passage, you're going to find out that it's like, well, he's citing Zechariah. It's really what he's citing is from Zechariah 11:13. So you can go and turn there if you want. We'll look at it. We're going to look at this in depth. This is going to take time. But what Matthew is doing is actually profound. It's like, well, why is he talking about Jeremiah when really this passage is talking from Zechariah? Um, so there's that difficulty we're going to need to work through. Um, there's also other difficulties. You'll probably notice in your translation, it says they took the pieces of silver and they gave them for the potter's field. Um, there's actually some ambiguity in the original. Is it a they or is it an I? And I think the best reading is it's an I. Hence, you've heard me reading it that way this morning. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and I gave them for the potter's field. But let's go ahead and look at Zechariah 11, 13. And you'll see that most of the words, not all of them, come from Zechariah. So Matthew, go to the left. Left of Matthew is Malachi. And to the one left of Malachi is Zechariah. It's a post-exilic prophet. And I'm just going to look for right now at 1113. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of Yahweh to the potter. So you can see a lot of similarities in language and even concepts with Zechariah. So, but the question still remains like, well, why is Matthew citing Jeremiah? I didn't mention Zechariah. Why is he citing Jeremiah? So this is where we get to work. Okay, because... We believe that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament contextually. And every other time we have looked at one of these fulfillment quotations in Matthew, even if they're brief, we always find that something as profound is being said if we go back to the original context, understand the original Old Testament text in context, and then come back to the New Testament and say, whoa, that's profound. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So bear with me, because it's going to be a little bit of a trek. What you notice in um, Zechariah eleven thirteen is there are several points of connection. Uh, there's the first person usage. I'm going to throw, uh, I'm going to take these 30 pieces of silver. So there's a connection, right? 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to take them as a wage and I'm going to throw them into the temple. Well, Judas just did that, didn't he? There's lots of these connections, and yet there's points of difference. Did you notice in Zechariah 11:13, there's no mention of a field? Right? There's, just a men there's a mention of a potter, but there's no mention of a field. So where's the field thing coming from? How's that working? Well, this is where we listen to what Matthew told us. He said, this is what was spoken and literally through the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew's not stupid. He's talking to a Jewish audience that would have immediately, who knew their Old Testaments way better than any of us did, and who the, their audience, Matthew's audience, Jewish audience, would have originally, uh, immediately picked up on the fact that, oh, he's quoting from Zechariah. But wait a minute, Matthew's mentioning Jeremiah. Why is he mentioning Jeremiah? And why is he saying it's spoken through the prophet Jeremiah? Well, Matthew's giving us a clue. He's not just saying, hey, look at these words in Zechariah. He's saying, read Zechariah through the lens of Jeremiah. And if you start thinking about the prophet Jeremiah, and this is where it's going to take some work, uh, you, would, uh, 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 you would recognize that, or the Jewish audience would recognize that, hey, 
Jeremiah talks a lot about a potter in Jeremiah 18 and 19. And hey, wait a minute. Um, Zechariah doesn't mention buying a field, but Jeremiah buys a field in Jeremiah 32. And those things would have been recognized by Matthew's audience. So we have to do the work to follow the trail that Matthew is leading for us. So bear with me. Go to Jeremiah 18. The way we're going to do this is we're going to go back up. Jeremiah was written before Zechariah. Jeremiah was written before the Babylonian exile. Zechariah is written after the Babylonian exile. That's actually very important. Um, go to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah is speaking and prophesying to the people of Jerusalem and Judah right before the years leading up to Nebuchadnezzar coming in and smashing the nation because the nation has been wicked and evil. And as part of that, um, God gives a warning in Jeremiah 18. I'm just going to read the first few verses. You can go back and read the whole chapter later. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the, the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. And then what God does is he goes on and says, hey, look, you guys are committing evil and wickedness, and I'm warning you that I will destroy you through exile if you don't repent. That's essentially what goes on in chapter 18. So Jeremiah says that to uh, his audience. He says that to Jerusalem and the people of Judah, and they're like, Let's not listen to Jeremiah. Let's reject him and let's kill him. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let's reject this person who is supposed to be speaking the words of God to us and let's actually kill him. So there's this plot against Jeremiah. And that is kind of, and, and what Jeremiah then does is he pleads to God and he says, God, I'm, I'm telling them what you told me to tell them, and I'm warning them for their good. Uh, see what they're doing. See the evil they're doing to me and visit it. And the answer to that prayer from Jeremiah's prayer is Jeremiah 19. There's no break between the two. It's the same sequence. So look at the first few verses of Jeremiah 19. Thus says Yahweh, go buy a potter's earthenware flask or a jug or a jar, some vessel a pot, that the potter made. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. So we got the elders of the people and the priests. That kind of sounds familiar. Sounds like Matthew a little bit. Chief priests and elders of the people. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate. So this is to the south of Jerusalem. It's a little valley. And some, uh, there's some evidence that this is where potters got their clay. Somehow associated with potters. Like a potter's field. A potter's valley. And what is Jeremiah supposed to do? And proclaim there the words that I tell you. And what does Jeremiah end up proclaiming? As you continue to read, basically God says, uh, the Babylonians are coming. You rejected my prophets. You rejected my words. You rejected my warning. And you're plotting against uh, my prophets. So what's happening? Exile's coming. And, this and so what Jeremiah does is he goes to this place and he says, uh, I'm going to devastate you, 
Israel. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to bring you into exile. And what Jeremiah does is he takes this pot and he smashes it to say, exile's coming. And this valley where I'm standing, this potter's valley, is not going to be called uh, no longer uh, the, the valley of the son of, Beth, son of, Beth, uh, of Hinnom. It's going to be called the valley of slaughter. And it's going to be buried. Uh, you're going to bury so many people in the valley of slaughter that you can't even bury anymore. It's going to be filled because of the devastation that's coming. Huh, a burial place associated with a potter's field. That's interesting. So you see con concepts and motifs that are building up that you can kind of begin to see some of the connections with Matthew. Now, that, so exile is coming. By the end of 19, there's this picture of God is the ultimate potter. He can do with the nation what he wants. And because of Israel's evil and rejection of his words, he's going to destroy it and bring it into exile. So there's that picture. But remember I said, uh, where's, what about the field buying? Well, that happens in Jeremiah 32. And again, I'm not going to read the whole section. You can read it later, but I'll summarize it for you. At the beginning of Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah has been imprisoned while Jerusalem is under siege. So the thing that Jeremiah predicted in Jeremiah 19, it's here. In Jeremiah 32, the Babylonians have arrived. Jerusalem is under siege. And people are still opposing Jeremiah's words, and they lock him up in uh, the, the court of the king. They lock him up. And in the midst of all of this, God says, hey, your cousin's coming, and he's going to want you to buy a field in your hometown, about two and a half miles away. Now, I don't know if you know anything about real estate, but when a siege is happening... It's a really bad time to buy real estate. When your whole country is about to get wiped out and possessed by another nation, it's a really bad time to buy real estate. And God says, your cousin's going to come to you. This sounds like something a cousin would do, right? Cousin's going to come to you and say, hey, why don't you buy this field? Why don't you buy this field for me? But God tells him ahead of time. And so Jeremiah goes ahead and buys the field. And then God explains, and Jeremiah is like, God, you're great and awesome, and I believe that you can do anything, but really, you just had me buy a field right before uh, the whole land's going to be taken over by the Babylonians? And what God says is, uh, fields are going to be bought here again by people of Israel, in Jerusalem and Judah and outside of it. So the purchase of a field is a, what we call a sign act, saying there's a promise of restoration. There's a promise of restoration. Restoration from what? Well, what exile is Jeremiah talking about? The Babylonian exile. Okay, now we're in a position to read Zechariah. Zechariah writes after they come back from the Babylonian exile. So what God promised in measure happened what God promised to Jeremiah and to the people of Judah and Jerusalem happened, and people came back, and that's when Zechariah is set. People had come back to the land. So that's significant. But what's interesting is when we read Zechariah and when we read the other post-exilic prophets, we find out that Israel's not the way it's supposed to be still. There's still evil in Israel. And we can even see that from the larger context of Matthew's quotation. So we start looking at um, Zechariah 11.4. 
Thus says, thus said Yahweh my God. So God is talking to Zechariah the prophet. Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Remember we talked about slaughter before, or Jeremiah talked about slaughter, the slaughter of exile. So that's ominous. Sounds like another exile is coming. Those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be Yahweh, I've become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. So Zechariah is dealing with evil shepherds of Israel. They're mishandling the flock, just like they did before the Babylonian exile, and it's happening again after they came back from exile. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. What is Zechariah saying? What is God saying to Zechariah? Effectively, he's saying exile's coming again. There was Babylonian exile. There was a sort of restoration, but looking to the future, Zechariah, God is saying to Zechariah, exile is coming again because Israel has the same problem and it has evil shepherds. Look at verse 7. So I, that's Zechariah, became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be, to be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of Yahweh to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. You see what's going on? God's saying, uh, here is the shepherd. He's going to shepherd you. And if you uh, but then the other shepherds and the other people of Israel reject the shepherd. And then what happens? Exile. Now, Zechariah is supposed to be the one doing this, but the shepherding language indicates that he's talking about the Messiah. He's prefiguring. He's doing an action that's prefiguring what the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is the ultimate Davidic king. David was a shepherd. David is often, the ultimate Messiah is ultimately presented as a shepherd. And so what Zechariah is doing is he is prefiguring what is going to happen with Jesus. Jesus comes as the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate shepherd. He seeks to shepherd the flock. That's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Jesus has even used that language, and yet he is rejected by the evil shepherds of Israel. And so what happens? Exile is coming. The whole notion here in Zechariah of throwing the silver to the potter, where it's like, well, why is he talking about a potter in the temple? That seems kind of odd. But now that we've read Jeremiah, who does the potter represent? The potter is the sovereign God who is sovereign over Israel and every, over every other nation. And effectively, what is happening is this wage being thrown into the temple. It's saying, we're going to start, the potter's going to start exile again. He's going to crush the nation of Israel to exile. 
that's what's going on in Zechariah. Now we jump back to Matthew, watching this whole thread. What happens in Matthew? Judas is a disciple of Jesus. In other words, he's a representative of Jesus, a bad one, but he is a representative of Jesus. He tries to return, uh, he receives this wage at which the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, seek to essentially value Jesus and his shepherding, and a representative of Jesus takes it. And then what does that representative do when he comes back? He throws it into the temple. And what happens after that? Well, it gets thrown to the potter, meaning God's going to start exile again, but it gets bought for this potter's field. Why is the, what's the deal with the potter's field being brought? Well, what was the deal with Jeremiah buying a field? Promise of restoration. See, what's being juxtaposed here is the evil of these shepherds, the evil and the result of Israel going into exile because it's, it, it rejected its Messiah the leaders killed its Messiah, and yet the very act of betrayal to which Jesus got crucified is the very act that's going to bring them restoration. They spend this money for a field. Effectively, Jesus, by proxy, through Judas, through the chief priest, buys a field. Why would that be? Because this price that was for his blood his blood purchases a field, which is a sign that I'm not done. I'm coming back. It is at once evil, but the very evil that is being perpetrated, the crucifixion of the Messiah on the cross, innocent blood being spilled, is the very thing that secures the hope of exile. The, the very hope of return from exile. The very hope of return and restoration. I don't know if you think about that we live in exile. Every single being on the planet lives in exile. Because mankind was designed to live in the presence of God, to enjoy God, to live under his rule, to serve him. But what Adam and Eve did with their heinous sin in the garden, and all of us have done since then, we live away from God's presence. Just like what Israel is doing, heinous iniquity. It's going to mean exile for that nation, but also God's providence and plan. The restoration for exile, the restoration of that evil comes through the spilling of Jesus' innocent blood. And it's the same for the rest of us. We all live in exile. We live away from God's presence. How can we be restored? How can we have the hope of restoration in the midst of a world of so much evil? The evil internal to us, the evil that we do to others. How can it be possible to be restored from this living hell? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has purchased people, and he's purchased the restoration, not only of people, but the world. I don't know if you think about this. Jesus' death wasn't just to reconcile people to himself. Colossians, and Colossians 1, that Paul talks about how it reconciles the whole cosmos. What do you mean by reconciliation? I mean the alignment of God with everything else in the world, the, thing, the way things were from the beginning, a new heavens and a new earth, everything aligned perfectly in God's will the restoration from exile. Jesus didn't just purchase people. He purchased the reconciliation of the whole cosmos to God. 
The only hope of the return from exile is the spilling, the very evil, the spilling of the blood of God, God the Son. And how do you take part in that? Well, Jesus already told how you took part in that. Faith, which he visualized in the Lord's Supper as eating and drinking. Your only hope for individual rescue, your only hope to escape from the evil of this world, the evil that's in you and exile is through faith, a faith that looks like drinking Jesus' blood, chewing his body, because what, not because that has any meaning in and of itself, but what it points to of what Jesus did on that cross, the pinnacle of history. And so it is appropriate that this morning we partake in communion. Because what we are doing when we come and partake in the bread and the cup is that we are saying these symbols which point to the death of Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood spilled, this is our hope for restoration. This is our hope for salvation. This is our hope for salvation from evil, salvation from exile. And when we chew that little wafer, when we drink that cup, it is a picture of what faith looks like. Faith doesn't just have mental assent. Faith doesn't just sorry over what it did wrong. That's what Judas had. Judas didn't have faith. Not true faith. Trying to atone for himself. But true faith looks like eating and drinking what Jesus did. Appropriating it. Having it nourish you. Betting everything on it. Needing it. We need food. That's why Jesus gave us the imagery he does in communion. We partake in the cup. We remember the innocent blood that was spilled to ransom a people to atone for a people, and to atone for, the, new, for the, the earth and the heavens, to fix everything. It's the paradox of the cross, the paradox of the horror and the beauty of the cross. Exiled, and yet the reality which brings us back from exile, that's why Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. When exile has been done, when we're back to restoration of not just Israel, but the whole, all of the nations, all of the earth. So as you partake this morning, if you are in Christ, if you are not in Christ, don't partake this morning. That leads you further into exile, leads you further into judgment. But as we partake this morning, you need to see at once the evil that was perpetrated on the cross and yet the reality that that in God's plan, in God's provision, in God's timing, that very evil, the spilling of the innocent blood of Jesus is the very thing that reconciles us. You eat in faith. You drink in faith in Jesus. I'm going to pray for our communion and for our sermon. And then I'm going to go down front and give you a few more instructions um, before we come forward this morning.
Father, your plan for history is profound. Beyond, we can just barely grasp the profundity of what you're doing. And yet we acknowledge that Jesus is the pinnacle. We trust by your grace that Jesus has sufficiently paid for his people, atoned for their iniquity so that we we don't have to. Jesus has done it. And not only rescued us individually, but rescued everything. Lord, this morning as we come, we pray that we would partake in a worthy manner, seeing not only what Jesus has done, but seeing the people whom he has purchased. And we pray that we would partake in faith, looking forward to the future restoration of all things. We thank you for the ability to do this during Christmas, where we see the start of the road to Calvary, the humiliation of the Son of God, to ransom a people in a place. And we praise you. Help us now. Bless the partaking of this meal for your people. In your name, amen.